Today's scripture reading is from the book of Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. you. may be seated. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see you this evening. My name is Jonathan Mosier, and it's my privilege and honor to be able to open up the word with you and for you in this evening as we continue on in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 9 this evening. Mark chapter 9. My, my family, my mother and my father, are uh, originally from out west. My, my father grew up in Wyoming, my mother in Kansas, and when they, uh, when they met, they uh, got married and lived in Denver, Colorado. And so over the years, as we were kids growing up, we had a, we had a lot of opportunities to get back out west and go visit family and uh, old haunts of my parents and those sorts of, sorts of things. And so um, one of the neat things that happens when you drive to a place like Denver, Colorado, especially if you're driving from Wisconsin, is you get this vast diversity in the scenery that you experience all along the way. So when you start leaving Milwaukee County or Waukesha County and then you head down through the southeastern part of the state, the scenery changes a little bit. You get those rock formations and you get some more streams and rivers and it gets a little bit more beautiful. And then you head through Iowa and it's mostly cornfields and then you get through Nebraska and it's mostly cornfields. And as you're driving through those portions of those states, what what you realize is that it's an incredibly flat land. I mean, there's very little to see. There's very little to catch your eye or, 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 or there, there, there's very little to draw your attention away from the road itself. But as you get through Nebraska and ultimately either into Wyoming or, Colorado, or into the state of Colorado, depending on which way you're going, you begin to see way, way off in the distance these dark formations. And at first, if you're not familiar and you're not sure what you're looking at, they just look like clouds, just like there's a storm that's about ready to begin brewing way off in the distance. But as you get closer, as you get a little bit closer to those formations, you start to realize that they're mountains. 
And as you drive yet a little bit further and a little bit closer, as those formations become a little bit closer to you, you realize the, the, the vastness and the magnitude of what it is that you're actually looking at until you actually find yourselves in the foothills. And that's when it hits you that what you've been seeing all along, what you've seen for miles, are actually just foothills to the real Rocky Mountains. And you start driving a little bit further and deeper into the mountains, and all of a sudden you find yourself at 5,000 feet of elevation, 6,000 feet of elevation, 7,000 feet, 8,000 feet, and finally, depending on where you're going into those mountains, you might find yourself as high as 12 or 13 or 14,000 feet of elevation, and all around you, as far as you can see, you see the vastness and the majesty of these mountain ranges. And it's overwhelming the first time that you experience it, the first time that you see it, when you're in that environment up close and you can see firsthand the formations of the Rocky Mountains, it is absolutely overwhelming because the scope and the size of what you're looking at is unlike anything that we've grown up with in the Midwest. And I think in a lot of ways, that's the experience that we have when we witness glory. When we use that word glory, we use that word often in Christian circles, and we don't always take time to explain what it is that we mean, but certainly one of the definitions we could use for the word glory is the word weight, meaning it, it carries a lot of magnitude with it, a lot of inherent meaning, a lot of inherent worth, that, that glory in itself is indicating that there is depth and there is breadth and there is majesty to whatever it is that we are assigning the word glory. And when you actually experience glory, even if it's just in earthly human terms, like seeing mountains or seeing the Grand Canyon or experiencing something like that that maybe is a new experience for you, it changes your perspective. It changes your perspective as you approach those particular objects, and it also changes your, your perspective walking away. Whatever it is that you've experienced begins to transform your thinking, and your view of the world. And one, one pastor, a Baptist minister who was a contemporary of Spurgeon, a man named Octavius Winslow, said it this way. He compared the glory that we experience in our lives to the experience of what it is to be a Christian. And here's what he said. The Christian life is torturous, torturous and checkered in its course. The royal path to glory is a divine mosaic paved with stones of diverse lines. Today, it is a depth almost soundless. Tomorrow, a height almost scaleless. See, that is the experience of what it is to be a follower of Christ. That there are days and there are weeks and there are seasons of our life where we experience unbelievable joy. Where we get a first-hand view, an up-close picture of who Jesus Christ is and the, the joy and the meaning and the purpose that he gives to our lives. And yet, there are other seasons where we find ourselves in valleys, where we nearly lose sight of who God is. It is, to use Winslow's description, a checkered experience. And in a very real sense, that's the experience that the disciples have 
in the text that Jim read for us this evening. Remember, this is coming on the heels of an incredibly hard conversation for the disciples. The disciples have just had the conversation with Jesus where he asked them, who is it that you say I am? And if you remember back with us last week, Peter's answer to that was an appropriate one. He says, you are the Christ. You're the anointed one. You're you're the Messiah. You are the one that was promised. The one who's going to be the deliverer of His people. You are the one that's going to lead us into freedom and into salvation, into something wholly different than anything we've experienced. You are God. And yet Jesus' response in describing His plight as the Messiah was one that was incredibly dark. He talked about the fact that he was going to have to suffer and die as the Messiah, and he went on to say, if anyone is going to be a follower of mine, they have to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. In other words, what he's describing for those those who are Jesus' followers, including you and I today, 2,000 years removed, is that it is going to be at times a treacherous road. A road like what many of our brothers and sisters experience all around the world today, meeting in secret and worshiping in private homes and not being allowed to demonstrate or show their faith in any meaningful external way for fear of the persecution that they will inevitably endure. And the promise that is given to us as followers of Jesus Christ is that in some sense or another, we are going to experience hardship and difficulty. And so the question that we asked last week is this, what price would you be willing to pay to follow Jesus? And today, in this text, we're given a glance into the glory of Christ. That this is one of those experiences that was going to carry the disciples through the hardship that laid ahead of them. And that's ultimately where we find ourselves in verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up to a high mountain by themselves. Now, the transfiguration, for a whole lot of reasons, and we're going to talk a little bit about what that word means, but the transfiguration story is unique in Scripture for a lot of reasons. I mean, literarily, it's unique for us because the transfiguration is recorded in all of the synoptic Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's also referenced in passing in John chapter 1, verse 14, where John says, we have actually seen the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. It's one of the few occasions that is either completely recorded for us or at least referenced in all four of the Gospels. Second, it's unique because we're told specifically where and when it happened. If you've been with us through the study of the book of Mark, one thing you've noticed about him is his brevity in writing. He doesn't give us a lot of surface or or, or, uh, surrounding details of what's happening. He just gives us the story for what it is. But here in this text he says, this happens after six days. He's linking this to history in time and place. This is unusual for him, but he wants you to see and understand that what happened in the transfiguration of Jesus Christ was not just some delusion or vision of the disciples but that this was a literal, historical event. And in doing so, he also directly connects Peter's confession of the Christ and Jesus' teaching on suffering with the glory of the transfiguration. In other words, he wants us to see how suffering and glory are connected. Third, Jesus invites only Peter, James, and John to join him. 
Now, this is something we see in reference throughout the Gospels, but this indicates the special relationship that Jesus had with these three particular men. If you remember how all of this works, Jesus had the crowds, the, the many people who were gathering around listening to his teaching and observing him perform his miracles, but then he had another group of followers, a large group of disciples who actually followed Jesus from place to place and, and who had put their faith and their trust and their hope in Jesus Christ. And then there was the 12 disciple, those disciples, those who who were specifically called by Jesus to be ministers of the gospel and ultimately to evangelize on his behalf. And then there was this inner circle of three, these three men who had a unique perspective and view into the life of Jesus. And finally, the fourth reason this story is unique is that it's reminiscent of Moses' experience at Mount Sinai. We're told that they went up into a high mountain where this transfiguration took place, and immediately in the Jewish mind, our, our minds would jump back to what happened when God himself was giving the Ten Commandments to Moses, and there's a parallel, there's a shift that's happening here between the law and Jesus Christ himself. And so we pick it up from there at the second half of verse 2. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, it's important to remember the context of this passage. I mean, just six days earlier, Jesus had told the disciples that because he was the Christ, he had to suffer and die, and that they as the disciples were going to have to endure this hardship. So imagine the fear that must be must be running through their minds at this point. They don't know exactly what it looks like. What does it mean that they're going to have to take up their cross? Are they going to face actual death on, 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 in their testimony of Jesus Christ? What is it that they're going to experience in the midst of all of this fear, all of this uncertainty? Jesus, in this moment, chooses to reveal his glory. I mean, imagine the confident awe that must have overwhelmed their souls after hearing the discomforting news of the suffering that they were to endure and now seeing Jesus in his deified form. And again, this isn't a vision. This isn't an out-of-body experience. This isn't a mass delusion. This is physically happening in front of them. He was literally transfigured. In fact, so much so that Peter in his letter says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, referencing the baptism of Jesus Christ, then we ourselves heard that very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And there Peter says, this wasn't some cleverly devised myth. This wasn't a way of drawing in new believers. We're just telling you what we actually experienced for ourselves. And he says what we experienced was the transfiguration. That word transfigured comes from the Greek word metamorphosed. It's where we get our word metamorphosis, the idea of changing into another form. It's the idea of a caterpillar going into a chrysalis. And the idea that when a butterfly ultimately emerges, the identity is the same. It's still the very same being. But the reality that was once hidden has now been made known. John Calvin, in his commentary on this text, called it a temporary exhibition of his glory. And look at the description that Mark gives us. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could 
could bleach them. This is strange language, but again, imagine what it is that Mark's trying to describe here. He's trying to describe something that words cannot express, and he says it's as if his clothes were so intensely bright that if you found the best launderer in all the world, he would not be able to make them as white as Jesus' garments were in this moment. In fact, he describes Jesus in this moment as radiant, literally the flash that you get from lightning. He's saying no one on earth could have produced an image like this. In other words, he's saying this, this demonstration of glory and power that was standing in front of them could only have been from heaven. Luke, in his description of the same text, said that Jesus' appearance uh, actually changed in its nature, that his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Matthew, in his recording of this text, says his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. That Jesus here is physically glowing with a blinding light. And the disciples, upon hearing this, would have immediately been reminded of Psalm 104, where David writes, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with majesty and with splendor. You are covering yourself with light as with a garment. And notice then it says that it wasn't that he in this moment chose to be transfigured, but rather he was passively the recipient of transfiguration. In other words, this is something that happened to Jesus by the hand of the Father. And here's why I point it out. Do you remember in the text that we studied a few weeks ago, the Pharisees had come to Jesus and they said, we want you to show us a sign from heaven. We've seen your miracles. We've heard your teaching. We know all about you. We've seen your ministry up close. Now we want a different sign. We want a sign from God himself to prove to us that you actually are who you say you are. And what we said as we studied that text was that Jesus was not going to be forced into giving evidence to those who refused to believe in him. In other words, if your point is to disprove the Godhood of Jesus Christ, he is not going to oblige you. But notice that in this moment, the disciples themselves are being given a glimpse into the future. Where Jesus stood there not as the suffering servant that they knew so well, but where he stood before them as the exalted Messiah. Isn't it amazing the lengths to which God will go to give confidence to his followers? I mean, how often in your life can you point to different occurrences or different circumstances or particular things that have happened where the only explanation has been God demonstrating his power and his love and his care for you, that sometimes he does that in spectacular, amazing ways, and sometimes he just does it in those everyday graces, those simple things that we experience throughout the course of our life, and all of those things are to give evidence to the truth of what Jesus Christ promised when he said, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And in this passage, he's giving that evidence to the disciples who are ultimately going to die on his behalf. Verse 4, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, we don't know how Peter and James and John knew that these men were Elijah and Moses. It must have been some sort of intuition, some sort of Holy Spirit revelation to them. But somehow, by looking at this man and, and hear, overhearing the conversation that they were having with Jesus, they very quickly realized, hey, this is Elijah and Moses. These are two heroes of the Jewish faith. These are people that, these are people that any child growing up in a Jewish home would have heard about incessantly. 
And Luke goes so far in his account as to say that, that when they began this conversation with Jesus Christ, as Elijah and Moses are talking to him, that what they were discussing with him was his exodus, his departure in Jerusalem. Now, what in the world does that mean? What is it that Elijah and Moses are coming to talk about with Jesus in this moment? And why are they talking about specifically his exodus and his departure in Jerusalem? Well, there's all kinds of speculation on that, and you can look up commentaries and read several different arguments. One of, the primary, one of the primary perspectives is that they were coming to him to talk specifically about his ascension, that time when he was going to leave earth once again and return to glory with his Father. But in the context of both this text and, and the book of Luke, I don't think that quite makes sense. I think instead this is a reference to what Jesus was going to endure on the cross. I mean, remember who, who it is that Jesus is speaking here. He's, he's speaking to Moses, who led the children of Israel out of Egypt, out of captivity, out of the cruelty of the Pharaoh, and led them ultimately into the land that God had promised. And I think, I think Mark is recording for us, and ultimately Luke in that particular text is recording for us, that Jesus Christ, through his death, was going to provide a means of salvation for his people. That just as God had used Moses to deliver the children of Israel in leaving Egypt, so he was going to use Jesus in delivering his people, you and I, Christians of all the ages past and all around the world, going to lead us into freedom and salvation from sin itself. See, Jesus in many ways is the true and greater Moses. That what Moses did in leading the people out of Israel was just a glimpse into what Jesus Christ was going to accomplish eternally on our behalf. And here's the implicit promise of this text. No matter what you face in this life, no matter how bad your life gets, no matter how dark the world grows, we have a Savior who walks with us. And whether it was the children of Israel leaving Egypt or the disciples that were going to face martyrdom or you walking through a dark day that lies ahead, we walk with one whom cons- who consistently provides a saving exodus for his people. And the mere fact that Moses and Elijah were chosen to come commune with, commune with Jesus in this moment shows the extent to which God the Father cared about his own son's condition. In other words, the Father knew what Jesus was about to experience. He knew the darkness into which Jesus was about to walk, the darkness that was ultimately going to lead him to suffering and to the cross itself. And so God the Father in this moment is actually ministering to the Son through Moses and Elijah. And in doing so, he's also communicating to you and me that the Son cares just as much for us. That he has not left us to our fate unattended. But here's what's most striking about this picture. Moses and Elijah are quite literally the personification of the law and the prophets. If you remember all throughout this book, it says that Jesus explained to them the law and the prophets. He explained how all the law and the prophets were pointing to the fact that Jesus actually stood there as the fulfillment of the promise of the Messiah himself. And here in this moment, we have the personification of the law in Moses. We have the personification of the prophets in Elijah. These two men were demonstrative of those two particular roles. And here they are speaking to Jesus Christ. God in this moment is communicating to the disciples as 
faithful Jews and to us as lost Gentiles who found salvation in Jesus Christ, he is communicating to us that in this moment, Jesus is bridging the gap between the law that we were unable to obey and the salvation that we desperately needed in order to have a renewed relationship with God. That only Jesus could fill that gap. And there is, in one sense or another, a baton being handed off here, a recognition of the fact that Jesus perfectly obeyed the law on our behalf. And notice what that leads us to in verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, as he always does, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Now you have to love Peter because Peter is the example of a person that we all know who in a moment where nothing should be said feels like they have to say something. And if you don't know who that person is in your life, by the way, it's you. Like you're that person. If you're the one who in a moment where nothing should be said, you feel like you have to give an explanation and you have to say something, you're a Peter. And I love Mark's description of this because remember, he's actually hearing this story from the mouth of Peter. This word is actually being shared to him from Peter. And Peter admits to Mark, I gotta be honest with you, when I saw all of this happening, I felt like I needed to say something, but I had no clue what to say because I was terrified. And despite Peter's perhaps embarrassment, over the way that he acted, he still records for us through the pen of Mark what happened. He says to Jesus, it was good for us to witness this. And I'll be honest, I don't even know exactly what that means. Maybe he's just saying, thanks for inviting us. Maybe he's saying, I'm really glad that I got to see this firsthand. But he expresses this appreciation to Jesus. And then he says, let's build three temples. We'll build one to Moses and one to Elijah and one to you. And initially, and at least how I've historically heard this taught, this is just an example of Peter's foolishness, right? He's so caught up in the moment, he doesn't know what to say, and he says, let's just worship all three of you. But I actually don't think that's what's happening here. I mean, remember, once again, Peter is a faithful Jew. He's a faithful follower of God. He would have known better than to begin worshiping Moses and Elijah. I think maybe Peter gets too hard of a treatment in this because perhaps Peter is expressing the hope that he had as a Jew, that God would once again have his physical presence in the land of Israel. I mean, for generations now, ever since the tabernacle had been removed, the Israelites have been longing for the literal, physical presence of God. And, and here in this moment, Peter is actually experiencing it, he's actually seeing it, and he wants to capture the moment. He wants to save what's happening. And so he says, let's just build these three temples so that we can keep your presence here. We'll just stay up here, and we'll just worship, and we'll just be in the presence of God together. But God, of course, did not intend for them to stay there. Jesus still had to go and die. And the disciples, of course, had their own responsibilities ahead of them. And so God shows his mercy to Peter by interrupting him mid-sentence, and that's what we find in verse 7. And as Peter is speaking, a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, the last time that we saw words like this being spoken from a cloud that clearly represents God himself, it was at Jesus' baptism, the inauguration of his human ministry. And here, near the close of Jesus' earthly ministry, once again, 
we get this admonishment from God himself. A cloud appears over them, representing the Shekinah glory of God, that literal, physical presence of the glory of God. The same presence that had led the Israelites through the wilderness was now hovering over them and declaring. And notice of all of the things that God the Father could have said in this moment, what he says is, this is my son. I need you to listen to him. Now Moses and Elijah are right there and in their generations, they both had been known to be the spokespeople of God during, the, during their day. But in this moment, God says, I want you to listen to my son, Jesus. And this is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where, where Moses writing says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And we see the fulfillment of that prophecy right here, where God says, Jesus speaks for me. Verse 8, and suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And this scene ends as suddenly as it had begun. And who remains here for us? Jesus. The disciples were not expected to go it alone now that they'd been given this affirmation of Jesus' character and the charge of suffering that they were going to experience. Jesus was still going with them. And as they walk, probably dazed, away from that mountain, they begin a conversation. Verse 9, as they were coming down, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what the rising of the dead might mean. And again, Jesus realizes that his disciples are only seeing in part. They're, they're not in a position yet to share the details of what it is that they've just witnessed because they didn't understand the full significance of what they just witnessed. This is the final time that we see Jesus telling the disciples to remain silent about what they'd seen. But in this case, there's a provision that he adds to the end of it. He says, I want you to remain quiet until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. He says, I want you to be quiet about this until the resurrection. And we're told that they were confused about what he was saying because in the Jewish mind, there was certainly a concept that there was day coming in which there was a true bodily resurrection of the Lord. But the idea of a Messiah needing to die and be resurrected was so foreign to them, despite the fact that this had already been explained to them, they still did not understand what Jesus Christ meant. See, the truth is, for all of us, the only way to truly understand Jesus Christ is through the lens of his death and resurrection. And if we lose those things, we have lost the essence and the importance of who Jesus Christ is altogether. As we talked about last week, the confusion or the half-understanding of the person of Jesus always arises as a result of not viewing him through the lens of his death and resurrection. Because without the cross and without the resurrection, Jesus is, at best, a good teacher. He is, at best, a worthwhile example of sacrificial love. But he is not God. And remember that it wasn't until Jesus' resurrection that the switch flips in the minds of the disciples. So they continued the conversation with him, verse 11, and they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come 
And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Now again, this is an obscure text for us of Gentile background, but what's actually happening here is an obscure reference to Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, which says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. See, the disciples are finally starting to get that the suffering of Jesus Christ is an important piece of his life, but they're still uncomfortable with it. They still don't like the idea that the Messiah himself has to suffer, and they don't want it to happen. So they say to Jesus in this moment, wait a minute, Malachi prophesied about this. He said that before the day of the Lord, before the kingdom of God is is experienced on earth, Elijah would be sent. And they start to put pieces together, and they say, but we just saw Elijah on the mountain, so surely that means that you don't need to die at all. But in the passage from Malachi, the prophet Elijah is used as a type, a picture, an example of what the prophet would be that God was going to send. And ultimately, God was going to send Elijah, the prophet who was going to warn people and call them to repentance, in the person of John the Baptist. That John the Baptist came and preached repentance, that he called people to salvation, that he made the way of the Lord. And Jesus in this moment says, yes, it's true that Elijah has already come and they did with him what they wanted. John the Baptist came preaching repentance and they already arrested him and beheaded him for his message. And so now, says Jesus, the Son of Man also must suffer. And once again, Jesus connects these two ideas of his own suffering as the promised Messiah with the glory that was awaiting him. So how was it that faithful Jewish men missed all of these Old Testament prophecies that foretold the suffering and the death of the Messiah? They missed it because they neglected to see that suffering precedes glory. And so God in his sovereignty provided the transfiguration for at least two reasons, probably many more but at least two reasons. One, to strengthen Jesus for what lied ahead. We already talked about this, but, but God knew what it was that Jesus was about to walk into. He knew the suffering that Jesus was about to experience. And so God in this passage is actually ministering to his son. And two, God gave this picture of the transfiguration to prepare the disciples for what they were going to experience. See, the disciples needed the experience of the transfiguration because it was by looking to Jesus Christ in that moment that they themselves were going to be transformed and transfigured and strengthened. And this is where this passage gets intensely practical for us. What does the transfiguration actually mean for us? Aside from demonstrating that Jesus Christ himself is God, what does this actually mean to us? Well, this passage is written to us in order that Jesus might be beheld, literally that you might see him. 
that you would be made aware of who he is, that you would have a picture of who Jesus Christ is, that whatever your picture of Jesus is as a good teacher or a good man or a demonstration of sacrifice or, or, or one who admonishes people to be kind to their neighbors, that your view of that in this passage would be blown up and that you would be forced to reckon with the idea that Jesus Christ himself either is or is not God. And that if he is actually God, that you would have to, in the words of Scripture, behold him. That you actually have to see him, focus on him, recognize him as such. And that by seeing and beholding him, that you might come to know Jesus in a deeper way. Now, this is what Paul writes about in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I want you to catch this because this is vital. The word that is translated in our Bibles as transformed or transfigured only appears four times in the New Testament. And one of the other times that this word is used comes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. I'm going to read verses 16 and 18 and listen to what it says. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed metamorphosed, transfigured. We are being transfigured into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So here's what Paul is saying. He's saying before you came to know Jesus, it's like your eyes were completely veiled. And don't think the veil of a bride on her wedding day where you can still see her face and if you were looking through the veil, you could still out, make out particular images or shapes. He's saying, no, it's like you are wearing a veil that completely obstructs your vision where you can see nothing. You can't discern truth from falsehood. You can't determine what is reality from what is false. That's the kind of veil that was on your face. That's, by the way, when we, read the, when we read the call to worship this morning, we prayed specifically, Jesus, you come to transfigure us and renew us into the image of God. Why? Because when one turns to the Lord, in the language of Paul, when you find your meaning and your salvation in him, when he redeems you, when he forgives you, the veil over your eyes is removed. And you're given a brand new identity, perfect and spotless before Christ. And now you can begin to see him for who he is. So that, listen, as you behold him, as you see him, you are transformed, you are metamorphosed, you are transfigured, that your life, that your outward appearance, your behavior, your face, your demeanor, everything about who you are is transfigured to reveal who you actually are now in Christ. See, this is how the Bible explains our transformation, and it's totally counterintuitive, that the way that you change and mature isn't by looking at your faults and looking at how broken you are and looking at how screwed up your life is and saying, man, I really need to get my act together. Do you understand that the Bible never puts the onus to change on your ability to accomplish it? Never. Instead, in this totally counterintuitive way, what he says is that the way that you are going to be changed is by witnessing and seeing and beholding Jesus Christ himself. That as we fix our eyes on Christ, as we see and savor the goodness of Jesus, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. Paul is saying you, as a believer in Jesus, you are already 
positionally holy and blameless before God. That through Jesus Christ, you are now in the process of becoming more and more like him by keeping your eyes fixed on him. And listen, that is fantastic news for us. Because we are experts at self-judgment. And the truth of the matter is, for as much as we are scared of other people's criticisms, for most people, you are your harshest critic. You know when you mess up, and you know when you don't trust, and you know when you doubt, and you know when that sin grabs hold of your life once again, that sin you've been battling for years. You know when your anger flares up or your lust flares up. You know when that relational brokenness begins to demonstrate itself in new and profound ways, when you begin to struggle and doubt and be in frustration and anxiety, when you are beaten and depressed and doubting. You are around and you observe and you recognize all of it. And the temptation is to look at it and go, I've got to fix that and I've got to step up my game in this area and I've got to start working on this particular element of my life. But the question for you today is this, how do you actually become more like Jesus? Is it by trying harder and mustering up more of your own ability? Is it by white-knuckling and grabbing on just a little bit harder? No, it is by seeing and beholding the person of Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Anglican minister, said it this way, the Son of God became man that children of men might become children of God. You become what you behold. Not by forcing synthetic growth into our lives, but by resting and what God has declared about us to be true already. And by looking to Jesus, that you begin to be transfigured into what Jesus has already made you internally. And then in the very same way, much like Jesus, when this transfiguration begins to take place in our life, it isn't our our nature changing. If you're in Christ, your nature is already new. Romans chapter 6, verse 6 says this. We know that our old self was crucified, past tense, with him, Jesus Christ, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. See, your nature's already been transformed. But the transfiguration grabbing hold of your life means that what's true of who God has declared you to be begins to shine through the darkness. That from the inside out, the gospel begins to work its way to the surface. And all of this happens when we behold Jesus Christ. We're given new life. We're given new eyes that through viewing and seeing and beholding Christ, our lives would be transformed and transfigured into his image. That's the process of sanctification. By observing Christ, we become more like him. So in a text that can be taken in all sorts of ways, 
where you can take it out of context and view it as purely metaphorical, or you can view it as in context, saying this is actually what happened with the physical body of Jesus Christ in this moment. The truth is the same. The way the transfiguration takes hold of you is by seeing and savoring your Savior. My prayer is that we would see him fresh and new today. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for the picture of who you are in this text, God, for, for any assumptions we've made or for any misunderstandings that we have about who you are, would this text transform our view of you? Would it force us to take account of how we perceive you? That you cannot simply be a good teacher or a good example or a good man. That you must also, by necessity, be God. And that if you are, in fact, God, that that changes everything. It changes what we live for. It changes what we die for. It changes the values and the perspective that we bring to this life. And so, God, far from us viewing this as one more motivation for how we're going to get our life in order, for how we're going to fix ourselves and manufacture righteousness in our lives, would we see this text for what it undeniably reveals about your nature, that by seeing you, by observing you, by believing you, by beholding you, our very lives are transformed. And God, in seeing that, would you do what only you can do so that only you can receive glory? God, we need a fresh vision of who you are not a vision born of our own mentality or our own imagination, but through seeing your word and having our minds enlightened by the Spirit, would you blow up our perspective and help us see you as the God that you are. And Lord, we pray these things in confidence that you hear us and in your beautiful name.